The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Paula Seligson, who covers leveraged finance at Bloomberg News. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. We're also very happy to welcome Jamin Patel, who looks at utilities and energy companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. We'll be discussing Latin American oil producers with him in a bit. I pleasure to join you. But before we do, let's talk LIBOR transition, by which we mean the switch to a new price benchmark for the trillions of dollars in assets that need to happen over the next few months. But by all accounts, it's not going very well. So let's get straight to it. Paula, what's the latest you're hearing on this? I am glad you asked because I love talking about LIBOR. Um, So essentially, we have to first take this in context of like the whole LIBOR transition. So a lot of asset classes have been doing fine, but specifically in the 1.4 trillion US leverage loan market, we're down to the wire. It goes away in the middle of this year, but there are still controversies as companies switch their existing loans from LIBOR to SOFR, the secured overnight financing rate, the preferred replacement in the United States. Um, So we've been covering a lot of stories about how there have been some cases where lenders are upset essentially about the credit spread adjustment. This is a special extra little bit of basis points that you add in to the coupon on the loan in order to compensate for how LIBOR typically prints above where SOFR does. Um, And so there have been cases where lenders have been trying to organize to vote against it. And this time we've recently done a story about cases where lenders don't get a chance to vote at all when these things are changed. Um, so specifically what we're looking at is, uh, essentially if you look at the universe of existing leverage loans, uh, they all have this special, essentially legal documentation built into them, um, that will allow for an easier switch from LIBOR to SOFR. And for roughly 30% of the market, they have this way where you can vote and there's been some controversy there. You can see our prior coverage, but our recent story is about 12% where essentially you don't have to vote if you're the company. Um, what happens is essentially if you switch from LIBOR to SOFR and you're the company and your bank that's been helping you with this agrees to the rate and the credit spread adjustment, you're good. And you don't have to ask for a vote as long as you're doing what's considered the market standard. But what's been happening is there's been bickering over what exactly is the market standard. So what we've seen is uh, some companies have used a 10 basis point credit spread adjustment during this transition. Um, Instead of using a staggered uh, credit spread adjustment that was essentially recommended by a a regulatory body, um, where they recommend 11 basis points or 26 basis points if you're borrowing on a one or a three month basis. So essentially, uh, 
like lenders, these these asset managers have been getting these notifications that say, hey, by the way, your LIBOR loan is now a SOFR loan and it used a 10 basis point credit spread adjustment. And they go, wait, hang on a minute. I wanted to vote on this. This isn't the market standard. But the company's perspective is they did pick the market standard because there have been other uh, loans that have flipped this way. And so it's messy. It's complicated. Honestly, I can see both sides of it, depending on how you think about the market. Um, and so we've been really trying to reflect in our coverage how this is very much still a price discovery. And there's still a lot of arguing between lenders and borrowers as this unfolds. That's great. But in simple terms, we're talking about um, risky companies borrowing from banks in what we call the leveraged loan market. And the basis on which they are priced is changing and uh, somebody's losing out here. Yes, exactly. So that's all about that credit spread adjustment. So on one hand, you have the company and they've borrowed sometimes billions of dollars from large groups of institutional asset managers in this market called the leverage loan market. And so if the the thing is that the difference between LIBOR and SOFR, because both of them are floating rate, right? Like both of those are benchmarks that change over time. So the difference between them also changes over time. So there's a special like group that's endorsed by regulators called the Alternative Reference Rates Committee. And so they tried to solve this problem. And in March of 2021, they picked essentially the five-year historical median of the difference between these two rates to set their own recommendations. And that's where that 11 basis points for one month and 26 basis points for three months comes from. So in theory, it should reflect the fact that this changes all the time. But right now, overall, the difference between the rates is smaller than where the ARC, that, that regulatory group, um, set the these recommendations. And so it's just arguing over basically pricing, essentially. Um, you know, if the borrowers lock in a lower rate, they essentially save interest expense. But then that's at the expense of the lenders who lent them the money in the first place. This is especially tricky for what are called CLOs or collateralized loan obligations because they pool a bunch of loans and then structure it in the special type of structured financial product and then sell that in bonds. And those bonds will have certain ways that they flip as well. So so they could actually lose a lot in the difference if it's not the type of credit spread adjustment that they want. So much of finance, so much of lending is, is based on LIBOR, consumer loans, car loans, um, credit cards. Why is the leveraged loan market such a laggard in all this? It's because it's very bespoke. If you talk to people in the market, they kind of brag about the fact that it's a very opaque market. Um, there's not a lot of electronic trading. Uh, the Each loan is, it's not a security. It's very customized and specific. And to even participate, you have to be a very large institutional asset manager, like normal people like me and you. We can't buy this kind of debt, right? And so the actual structure of the loan market is almost kept like purposely opaque and complex because companies want it to be customized and, and very private. And so usually that's quite frankly fine. It you know, goes along quite well. There's massive volumes every year of new deals. Things are refinanced. Leveraged buyouts are financed there. It's not a problem. But when you take that, you know, customized market, you know, very opaque market and apply it to something as complex as the LIBOR transition, that's why you start to see these very uh, interesting situations come up. What's the deadline to switch over to the new benchmark? The end of June of this year. And that is already an extension of the original deadline. 
So do we fear some kind of catastrophe when we hit that deadline? That is unlikely. Most loans have some kind of fallback language that will essentially default them to the spread adjustments recommended by the ARC. But there are certain chunks of loans, the 30% of negative consent, the 12% of no lender consent. And those are the ones where we're going to see some weird variability. The worst case scenario for some companies is that if they absolutely cannot get their stuff together and they flip to nothing come July 1st, they will fall back to what's called the uh, the prime rate. And that is roughly 7.75% now. So the risk is if their companies that fall through the cracks, they will suddenly see their interest expense spike significantly by roughly 3% percentage points. Great. Okay. Very interesting. What's the next thing to watch here? What are, what are we looking at in terms of short-term the developments in this story? We're just waiting to see how fast the market transitions. So roughly 25% of the leverage loan market has transitioned to SOFR. And we're now just basically waiting to see how fast or how long it takes for the remaining 75% to make the switch. And how is all this drama affecting the broader credit markets? In a lot of ways, it's not doing that much. Like, this is just sort of going along in the background. You know, we have, uh, we separately from that, we've seen sort of this rally in credit markets in January, and that rally has begun to pull back. Um, in leverage loans, we've been talking about, leverage loans have actually held up pretty well, and we still have a lot of issuance there. But in high-yield bonds, which are a very related asset class, we've seen yields go up, and we've seen issuance of new debt really slow down in recent days. Thank you, Paula Selickson. We look forward to reading your scoops. And listeners can can read all of your news and analysis of leveraged finance um, and other credit markets um, and our global team by, by Paula and our global team of credit reporters on the Bloomberg Terminal or at Bloomberg.com. Switching gears here a bit, um, as I mentioned earlier, we are very lucky to have Jamin Patel from Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, now, Jamin, you look at the energy sector in uh, Latin America, which is always exciting. Um, I was you know, I've been covering that that region and, and that um, particular sector for quite a long time. We've got Pemex in Mexico. We've got Petrobras in Brazil, Eco Petrol in Colombia. The region is full of huge state-owned energy companies, um, you know, some of the biggest in the world. I've, I've spent time at uh, Pemex City in Mexico City, which, um, as it suggests, truly is a city within a city. Um, these companies are massive, really. Um, and they're also huge borrowers in the dollar markets. Um, and so in- international investors are very exposed. Um, but I just want to start, Jamin, by, by asking you, what's the general state of this industry? Is it, we, is it in good shape? Uh, I think I think generally it's in, in better shape than it was a year ago. Certainly crude uh, oil prices having rallied the way they did, even though they've come down quite a bit, um, have enabled these companies to significantly repair the balance sheet. You've had Petrobras use its uh, debt by almost 50%. Um, if, you know, you've got YPF and Pampa Energia in, uh, in, in Argentina, um, which are you know, much smaller companies, but um, just as interesting um, and, and, and just as much in the minds of investors, high-yield uh, energy investors as, as perhaps uh, some of the others, um, that have really managed to bring their leverage down. Now, not to the extent that you've seen with the oil majors, uh, but but quite significantly uh, been able to repair the balance sheet. They haven't always been known for their efficiency, though. How, how good are they are doing what they do compared to the oil majors? What, you know, what's their cost of production for, for a barrel of oil? Well, you know, interestingly, if you look at their EBITDAX margins, um, they are very competitive. They're significantly higher uh, than the oil majors. And, you know, here I'm talking about not just the big ones uh, 
story there. Um, but the reason is not necessarily because they are more efficient. They do have, uh, you know, quite competitive lifting costs. But because their focus is so much on crude oil than it is on natural gas, uh, when we saw the rally in crude oil prices, um, before we saw the rally in natural gas prices, uh, their margins obviously went up uh, significantly more. Now, when we see the 2022 um, earnings results come in, um, you know, part of that edge may have uh, may have dissipated. Um, but now natural gas prices have come down very significantly, uh, both European and U.S. natural gas prices. So uh, to the extent that that affects their uh, their pricing, um, you'll see them, I think, regain, regain the uh, margin edge that we had seen them uh, enjoy before. But how exposed are they to the drop in oil prices? You know, we're heading potentially into a recession in the U.S., which isn't good for oil demand. Um, and, you know, that's going to be lower prices. Are they hedged at all? Well, again, it really depends from uh, country to country. Um, I, I think, you know, you've heard of the, the Hacienda hedge in uh, in Mexico. Um, now, that's, that's a government hedge, but all of these companies will have hedged to a certain extent. Clearly, lower uh, uh, crude oil prices will have hurt their balance sheets and their earnings uh, to some extent. But again, as I said, it really depends on which company you're talking to. If you look at Pemex, for instance, um, which uh, has a a significant shortfall of uh, of refining capacity uh, and will do so uh, until it's uh, completed its uh, Dos Bocas, massive Dos Bocas uh, refinery uh, in Tabasco. Um, They they will continue to um, have to continue, will continue to have to import significant amounts of expensive um, uh, finished products, uh, including gasoline and diesel. Um, so you may have natural, uh, you may have crude oil prices coming down uh, that impacts their revenues from crude oil, but you also have this offset from lower prices, significantly lower prices for the fuel. So yes, uh, there will be an earnings impact, um, certainly for Pemex. Not so much for Petrobras, which which has significant refining capacity, and and for Ecopetrol. But uh, again, as I said, it really depends on the company you're looking at. Okay, that's interesting. One one thing I've noticed, Jamin, on the on the bond side, um, the debt is pricing much wider than the sovereigns. You know, at least um, compared to what I remember uh, in previous years. You know, that that is, it costs these companies much more to borrow in the um, dollar markets than it costs the countries that they are in. Even though they are state-owned and um, look like it, you know the same level of risk, at least to me, why is that? What's going on there? Well, you know that's a, that's a really interesting situation. And and again, um, even though we're talking about one region, each country uh, is is an entity uh, unto itself. So what you just said uh, certainly applies very much uh, to to Pemex in, in Mexico. Um, but when when you consider that Pemex is really the only one hundred percent owned. Uh, by the government, a company that's owned by the government. Um, yes, certainly when, when you look at the others, there is significant uh, government influence and in, in ownership. But Tenex is the only one that's 100% owned by the government. And S&P's investment grade rating, indeed, is, is based on the like, likelihood of what they refer to as extraordinary support from the government. Um, so uh, to me, yes, you, you know, Tenex is certainly the most leveraged of all these companies and perhaps, you know, the most leveraged uh, uh, company, uh, energy company in the world, certainly the most indebted. Um, that that price gap can be quite surprising. Um, you know, it, it, a, a lot of a lot of that movement between the the, the sovereign and the uh, corporate 
yields has really depended uh, to a significant extent upon the rhetoric that we hear coming from the uh, the Mexican government. Um, whenever they, they announce that they will be supporting or plan to support the, gov- uh, the, the company specifically, that is, they are going to put X amount uh, in, in terms of equity or they're going to reduce their taxes by Y amount, you see that spread narrow. So it's a kind of a temporary thing? It's not really a long-term phenomenon? Or, or is it a trade that people should be jumping into? Well, I, I think I think um, if if Mexico steps forward with something specific in terms of an equity infusion, um, you will see it, you should see that spread uh, narrow significantly. But again, as I said, uh, you know, getting back to 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 the pretext of your question, um, it not all of not all of these companies have a wide gap between the sovereign and and the um, and the corporate. In fact, in in Argentina's case, the sovereign trades significantly wider than the corporates, uh, primarily because the, the corporates are, are uh, big exporters. Interesting. Okay, so they have hard currency coming in. Um, on the funding side, do we expect uh, Latin American oil and gas to be big uh, issuers of debt this year? Um, I think if you do see significant issuance, it may be from Ecopetrol with the with the changing government uh, under the Petro uh, administration and and the move uh, to transition the company uh, to cleaner energy. Um, all of that rural spending is going to have to be funded somehow. Um, so I, I think you you may see uh, more from Ecopetrol perhaps uh, than you will from Petrobras. In Petrobras' case, again, we're not quite sure how the Lula administration wants to play with the uh, the refining uh, situation. But if they do decide to uh, construct refineries uh, or increase their refining capacity, you may see some there. Um, you are not going to see, I don't think, much out of Argentina, only because there is such limited access to the market. Okay, interesting. So just switching slightly to um, another related topic, um, ESG. Um, you know, it's such a big um, deal for uh, all markets and um, credit in particular. But how are these companies transitioning away from fossil fuels into green and clean fuels? Well, I think I think uh, Ecopetrol is probably the one that comes first to mind, um, just given, as I mentioned, the transition um, to, to clean energy that the, the new administration uh, wants to push through. We haven't seen as much. Perhaps we've seen some from from Brazil, but not so much from Mexico or or Argentina. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, you know, I think I think we should certainly talk about Pedevesa, um, which uh, you know has the heaviest oil um, akin to what we see in the oil sands, uh, but also the dirtiest fuel. So um, if if uh, sanctions are lifted or, or eased for Pedevesa, and we see their production moving up, um, I think. That may become a, a central point for ESG in Latin America. Interesting. And on, on sanctions, I mean, you kind of raise the issue of um, political risk, which is so key to a lot of these um, companies. I mean, I remember the Petrobras um, car wash scandal, which uh, brought down several presidents and uh, other executives um, and really slammed the price of all the securities and uh, t- tipped that company into distress. What's, what's the um, regional outlook? Are we, are we a much more in a much more stable Latin America than previously, or is it still as rocky as ever? Well, I, I, certainly we've seen a, a degree of stability. We just saw two changes of administration, one in Brazil um, and one in Colombia. Um, their policies um, will, will perhaps affect the earnings capability of these companies, but I don't think you're going back 
change, um, greater cooperation um, and, and, and dialogue with the U.S. may open, uh, open that region up. Um, where Argentina is concerned, it's much more uh, an economic case. They have very strict uh, capital controls. Um, and even though these companies, uh, YPF and companies here, are, are very profitable, uh, the concern we have there is their ability to repay debt as it comes due, particularly for YPF in 2023, uh, and their access to dollars to do that, uh, which interestingly um, you know, makes the uh, uh, Argentinian government's recent uh, buyback uh, of, of dollar debt very interesting because uh, they could use those funds perhaps to ease some of these capital controls. Do we think generally that um, political risk is, is priced into Latin American markets on the on the credit side? I, I think so. I think so because you know uh, really depends upon the spread that you see between uh, the sovereign and the the corporates and um, you know earnings uh, and, and efficiency and debt maturities aside, which you see primarily with Pemex. Um, I think it's pretty pretty well priced for uh, for Equipetrol in Colombia and Brazil and Petrobras. Okay, let's hope you're right. We'll definitely read your analysis with great interest as we go through this. Uh, uh, it's always a, it's always an interesting time for for, for LATAM. Thanks very much, um, Jamin Patel from Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. And thanks also to Paula Seligson from Bloomberg News. Read all her scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.